psychological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. As the creator of this podcast, perhaps the one thing I hope to accomplish in each episode, above all else, is to reveal something new and interesting about a topic you may have taken for granted. Sometimes those revelations may cause somber reflection, sometimes fascination and excitement, but hopefully always a widening and deepening of your appreciation for the reality we experience. Today, I believe we have a real gem that elegantly demonstrates what this show and philosophy itself is all about. Today, we're looking at color. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really excited for this one. <laughs> we uh, This is another one. Um, it's off the list. So uh, we were we were thinking about it. We go, oh, let's let's look at that list again. Because there was, you know, symmetry worked out to be so interesting and cool. It did. That uh, so, yeah, let's look. And I, I saw color. And, and, and you and you and it, it prodded me very well. It made well. It's another. It's another moment of humility when I started thinking about it. And I haven't read about the philosophy of color in a long time. Yeah, I think about it as an artist. I think about color, but now that reading this week and going through things, and then thinking about conversations recently that seem to be random, but of course you find that interconnectivity, the synchronicity, got things to say about that, but ultimately um, it's so much more vast and immersive than you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. Um, <laughs> like I said, I, I just feel like it, it's, it's elegant. Like when it really is an elegant display of philosophy, because it's something that nobody, you don't really think about it. You just, you see color and that's the end of it. But then you know, you you scratch the surface and you can get a little bit and then you go a little bit deeper and the deeper you go, the more you realize that this this rabbit hole just never ends. Mm. So what, what's your favorite color? Do you have a favorite color? <laughs> so I should say purple because that's my granddaughter's favorite color. And it has grown on me because she, she finds things that uh, sometimes wackily and sometimes aesthetically, but always seem to complement each other in, in mm. surprising ways. I do like purple. Uh, it, it, it used to be uh, green. It became blue. So I could offer another granddaughter uh, observation. Just my, my favorite color is the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess let's let's say blue. Okay. Yeah, blue is my favorite too. I, I the color of the sky. You know, like that that kind of um, soft blue color. That's that's my favorite. Except, of course, we know that it's not one right <laughs> so yeah yeah if you and as an artist you know you realize this as you go to paint you know a sky you realize okay at the horizon um the sky is actually almost white but then if you look straight up on a clear day it becomes a very dark blue so it's actually a gradient color and that's because of because of the way the the light diffracts through the atmosphere and then at sunset as the light has to travel through more atmosphere, those waves get stretched and it becomes orangish and then reddish and goes through the whole the whole gambit. So, so we end up asking those questions. Is the sky blue or are we perceiving it as blue? Yes. Does it have its own characteristics in a physicalist way or does it? <laughs> yes, yes. So that's the stuff we're going to get into today. Purple is also an interesting choice because purple doesn't exist because, <laughs> because you have the way that light works. You have blue all the way on the short end of the spectrum. You have red all the way at the long end of the spectrum. Well, how do you get purple? You mix blue and red, but that is unnatural <laughs> in terms of light. So yeah, we've got some, there's some really interesting stuff in this show. So um, I hope the listeners appreciate it. So why don't we start out by asking, like we always do, what is color? <laughs> well, let's let's start with what everybody wants to hear. Color, <laughs> color is the characteristic that uh, every, let's say, most every object within our visual range seems to have <laughs> uh, that that determines 
It seems no. Let's back up. <laughs> this is the trouble. I was, yeah, yeah. Here's I was the practicing this this week. Yeah, this is the problem, and that's that's the thing is, like I said in the intro, um, you know, color is one of those things we take for granted. Yep. And asking what is color almost seems like a stupid question. Like you could ask a two year old what's color, and they could give you just a perfectly what, fine description. They, what they but, tell you the color. Right. They would use it by, 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 by example. Right. Well, that's blue or that's okay. The property possessed by an object. This is what I was trying to say. You're already just that far. We already have philosophical issues that we're going to get into, but continue. (laughs) Yes, we do. The property, and this is dictionary definition, folks, the property possessed by an object of producing different sensations on the eye as a result of the way the object reflects or emits light. And then we can go to pigmentation of skin or, and, and so on. But just starting with the first one, the property possessed by an object. Yes. <laughs> so, um, man, in doing the research for this show, that opens up so many. It does. It, it, it's just the biggest can of worms. because So... You have sort of science at odds with philosophy in this regard. You have um, eliminativism and subjectivism, right? So eliminativism is the scientific position, which says that no, color is not the property that an object has. Objects, in fact, do not have the property of color. Color does not exist. All color is, is... um you know, the function of light and texture, right? Light on right. texture. And then subjectivism is this idea that, um, that things actually, you know, well, the properties of things actually do have color. And I think an interesting, um, voice in this debate was Rene Descartes. You know, Descartes gets a bad name for the Cartesian splits, right? Um, right. unnecessarily, reducing things. In this case, he actually did just the opposite because he has a quote um, where he says, okay, um, maybe color doesn't exist out there, but objects have properties which cause us to perceive color in them. So if you look at it that way, then, you know, it's sort of a, a combination of the two of the two paradigms. All right, so maybe color doesn't exist objectively, but objects have properties that cause us to see colors, so it's kind of a mixture of the two. And this goes back to Socrates, who says uh, color, his definition, which he he himself didn't like, uh, color is a kind of effluence from bodies. Hmm. (laughs) Something that they give off. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So this is interesting, right? Um, Because that was my next question is, have philosophers talked about color? And they really have all the way all back the way to the through. to the ancient ones. All the which way is that, that's fascinating to me, right? Because color is such an it, just a uh, an ingrained part of our experience that it seems like something that would be able to go unnoticed for for quite some time before anybody said, "Hey, wait a minute." But no, all the way back at the beginning, people were saying, "You know, why is this thing?" This color and this thing that color. Well, I think that, that, and we encounter this in all the, you know, the readings. I'm sure you, you, you too. But it, things that make sense when you just slow down and think about them. Yeah, you put a, a color under a certain light, or let's, I'm, let's just, we have to start somewhere. Let's take mm-hmm. something that seems to have color. Let's say it's red. We put it under a yellow light. It looks black. Or not red. So did the red change? No, the light caused the change, which means the color is not static. Yes, yes. So in addition to the two paradigmatic positions that I presented earlier with eliminativism and subjectivism, within science, there's additional positions um, of uh, trichromatic and color constants theory. These are both scientific positions that have evidentiary support um and they're not they're not mutually exclusive or anything but they do create a tension among each other so your your trichromatic theory this is talking about color perception in the human organism so 
we as humans have three cone perceptors, a, a red, a green, and a blue. And so as light enters our eye, it stimulates the three different cones in different ways, and that causes our perception of color. Um, but then you have color constancy, which is exactly what you just mentioned, where, okay, so we have those three cones, right? And we're looking at an object, and that object is yellow, right? And then you put it under a red light, and suddenly that object becomes black. So what happened, right? It's the same object. Um, but but the light changed. So this this idea of um, going back going back to the initial the yeah. scientific yeah. versus the philosophical position. Yeah. Well, do objects have color, or is that just something that occurs in our brains? Um, you see a little bit of both there, right? Because you know the object appears to have a color. It's um, yellow in this one light, and then it's black in this other light. So there's something about that thing has a property that it carries over throughout context. But then also, um, the light, if you change the light, which is not considered a thing in this, in this case, <laughs> if you change the light, suddenly the object itself changes. So there's sort of support for both theories of color perception there. And, um, you know, there, it, it complicates the issue greatly. Very much. It does. It, <clears throat> I was talking to my, well, first, I, I, I will say that if, if you have a person, a human being who's four and a human being who's 65, and both of them look at a board book, and it's a board book about colors and shapes. Of course, I, at the same time I'm doing this with my granddaughter, I'm thinking, Yes, but in the 16th, 17th century, the, the pre-scientific um, explosion, really, but getting there, um, the the idea of of shape and motion and size being primary qualities, and color being a sort of passive, secondary, not important. It's not whether it's even quality at all, whether it's even even a quality or a thing. That's in my head when I'm reading this very simple board book. This is a square. The square is green. This is a, you know, and then, but then you turn the next page. This is an astronaut with a jetpack flying through space at incredible speeds. Now, that makes a little one laugh like crazy because <clears throat> it's the intrusion of the seemingly absurd. <laughs> the, the out of, I love it about this book. You get past the laughter, though, and you say, well, what just happened? What just happened is the book is poking fun at what we think we are so sure of. Right. You know, and so there's a playfulness in that. So I had that happen this, this week, even as we're talking about this. And then my father, I check in with him daily on the phone, and he was really um, not pleased about something that he'd read in the news. He thought it was just ridiculous. <laughs> and I understood why on the surface of it, he said, they're saying, whoever they are, <laughs> that that the feathers on the cardinal are not red. That the, you take the separate feathers themselves, and and it's the light coming in and hitting the cardinal that's making this. I sit at the table and I can look out at the bird feeder and I see the red cardinal. Hmm. Why are people making this so difficult? You know, and, right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and one moment you'd have to say, yeah, it does seem like it complicates everything. But then on the other hand, it's, but yeah, but that's not how it works. Right. Yeah. And that's, that one's a fascinating um, case, right? You see that a lot in birds. You look at a, a, you know, a grackle or a crow or something and they're black and then the light hits them just right. And they have this iridescent rainbow effect to them yeah. or, um, you know, the, and then this, I forget what it's called exactly, but. There's a property um, of things that a thing can actually not have any color, but the structural of the structural property, if the structural property of the thing is the exact same as the wavelength of the light, it will be that color. And that is the case of sky blue, right? <laughs> the sky is actually not blue, but because of the composition of the atmosphere, it happens to be just the exact wavelength of that blue light. And so as the sun travels through and you get that gradient effect, well, that's actually the light waves being the exact same 
um, distance as whatever color it is that you're seeing the sky. So philosophically, we would say then that the sky does not possess blue. Blue is a creation of physical energy, uh, light, chemical interactions, which only exist because of our eyes. Mm. And so, yeah, and, and that's where it gets complicated, right? Because in that in that specific instance, um, structural structural color, that's what it is. So in structural color, and you can do this with any object, um, if you, you know, carve a little bit out, a CD, if anybody remembers what those are, right? A compact disc. <laughs> you look at that and you see the way it scatters light. That's because of the grooves in the disc um, that, that contain, you know, the, the musical information. There's a lot of, I'm guessing, I didn't read the article that, that your dad did, but I'm guessing the cardinal's feathers are the same. You know, there's probably the grooves in the feathers or the distance between the yes. individual um, parts of the feather are far enough away that they're the exact wavelength of that cardinal red mm-hmm. light. Mm-hmm. So as a result, the feathers themselves are not red, but they reflect a red. They, they have a structural property that causes our eyes to perceive red. Um, so in that case, <laughs> in that case, it seems pretty clear cut, right? Science is correct. Um, these, these things do not have color. It's just, um, uh, the perception of the way our, our eye cells are structured and then the way that our brains integrate that information case solved, right? Not really, because that's not the way that we perceive all color. That's just structural color. Um, but other things that we see, um, actually, don't have the structural property of the light that's being refracted. There's absorption, there's um, additive or subtractive properties. There's all of these different things. So um, we're really, we're 17 minutes and we're really just scratching the surface here. But um, do you, let's talk about how, how we perceive color. Should we talk about the different types of the ways of perceiving? I, I think we can dive into that. I, <clears throat> of course, we don't want to drive people away and say, well, this is just getting really obscurism. But <clears throat> I think for me, the, the important point is when I, you often refer to music and I, and I refer to art. When I'm thinking about color, the philosophy of color, and I'm thinking about a composition I'm working on this week, doesn't, and I think about this, the processes that we go through, and I think this will take us to talking about those those varieties. Um, I know that I'm moved to render an impression of a person in values of blue. So I I go to my uh, acrylic tubes and jars and find blues. And then I also lay out of my, my oil pastels, the blues. And, and I, and I'm looking at them and saying, okay, well, this one, this one, and this one would be, uh, three value levels distinctions that I think would bring out the drama in the piece that I'm going after. But I'm not thinking about that when I'm actually going after the piece. I, I, it's in there, but it's not. But but to get ready for it, I want to know what my tools are. So it's convenient to say, well, there are a bunch of blues mm. that are different from each other. So I don't think, well, is that actually blue or is that? Right. <laughs> I'm not doing that. And I, I want to say that because I don't want to th- people to think that we're just disconnected from. Mm. But I know that uh, when I photograph my work, and I haven't, haven't finished this piece yet, but I've done other blue pieces, or, or choose your combination of colors. When I photograph it, it depends on what paper it's on, where I photograph it, under what conditions. And so I, I had a, a, a one of the many, many things I've been working on this year, I had a piece that um, I made out of various duct tapes, a rendering of a bust in duct tape. And... I was doing it in a shady barn in my outdoor studio. When I rendered that, and I then took it outside, and I photographed it in sunlight, it did not look like white, gray, and black. 
It was almost uniformly silver. When I photographed it in shadows at night, that changed again. When I changed the filter and the exposure and the ISO and all those things on the camera, unique things are created. Yeah, yeah. And so there's there's a lot there. So we'll talk about there's additive color. And this is normally um, how we experience color with our eyes is additive color comes from the light. So if you add light together, um, you can get different colors. So if you add, and if you add all of the colors together, you get white light. White light. Um, then there's subtractive color, which goes into pigments, materials. So your paints are subtractive, which means that if you were to add all of your colors together, you'd get black. black. So there's this cool kind of interaction of those things happening in your attempt to photograph it, right? You have these materials, this duct tape, um, that the pigments in the duct tape were formed subtractively in order to get a gray, in order to get a black, in order to get these things. Yeah. But then the light that you're, fi- that you're photographing it in additive. Is, is additive. So the way that the light interacts with the pigments and the tape is going to be really um, kind of unique, right? So if you have white light, which is the combination of all colors, hitting black duct tape, which is also the combination of all colors, the way that it reflects and the way that your camera picks it up with its um, photoreceptors, it's, that's, that's why photographing things is, is, is an art form in itself. It, it's it, a very it, difficult thing to, to sort of anticipate. And you have to, and you need to, now I, I, I know people who've been professional photographers their entire lives, including my brother. I don't approach it as a professional, but you approach it in a playful, experimentative way. And you say, oh, all right, well, that, I like the drama of this. This is a complete, and so, you, so I end up having four or five different pieces based on the same initial, so what do you, what do you call it? Piece prime, <laughs> and then uh, pieces secondary, uh, alpha and beta, whatever each of which is its own piece of art because of the light mm. and the because of the additives and and as all of these elements all of these things you become aware that it's all part of making that art so you can think of physicalism you can think of subjectivism you can think of eliminativism and of course well i, I do but not as a first principle yeah, there's there's the subjective human experience, and you can talk about sort of the nomothetic, you know, human experience. But then on top of that, there's also your idiosyncratic subjective experience, which you know means that. Okay, so I talked earlier. Each every everybody has three um, cone receptors: yeah. red, green, and blue. They're starting to find out, they've done some scientific studies, and they found that up to 50% of women actually have four cone receptors. (laughs) And they said that the difference is, with three cone receptors, uh, you can see, you know, at the top end, maybe 10 million colors. If you have four, you can see about 100 million colors. So, 10 times as many. So, you know, and you, there's probably a lot of people that have had experiences with this, right? I I talk with my wife. I say, oh, yeah, here's this color of something, right? And she says, that's not that color. That's something completely different, right? But may, there's a possibility she has an extra cone and she's able to see colors that I have no access to. But we, but we, but we all, whether male or female, I think even, and, and that's an important point you just made, and I didn't realize that. So that's mm-hmm. another learning thing for me. Uh, same board book my granddaughter and I are looking at. And it says... Uh, this is purple. And she said, that's not purple. That's pink. And I looked at it and I said, yeah, to my eyes, that's pink too. Mm. Why do they call it purple? Well, <clears throat> I couldn't have this discussion that we're having right now with her. But I said, because sometimes people see color differently because color isn't always exactly what it says it is. Yeah, and there's this fascinating, in the research that I was doing, there's this fascinating example of this. Um, like I mentioned earlier, purple, um, 
isn't isn't a real color really because you're mixing two opposite ends of the the light spectrum but there's other ones that are also impossible um like uh blue and yellow you can't you can't see a bluish yellow that's not a real color reddish green you can't see a reddish green that's not a real color um but the website that i went to had an interesting experiment experiment where um they had these blocks of color and they had a plus sign in the middle of them and if you let your eyes unfocus so that the plus signs and the blue block and the yellow block overlapped, um, what would happen with most people in most cases is the color will just flash back and forth. You'll see a yellow and a blue square flashing back and forth. Um, they won't mix. But some people will actually see the two colors merge. And I experienced this with one of them. Yeah, it was like a teal colored blue and like a dark um orange color and suddenly they mixed into one color it wasn't a good color it was it was it was sort of brownish um but it wasn't just the the squares flashing back and forth and they said if you can see this you're not supposed to like that's it's really not the way the human um eyes and brain work but we know that some people can right so yeah the the perception of color you know we've <laughs> we spent the first part of the show explaining just how weird the conceptual <laughs> abstraction of color is, the, but the perception of it, the thing that we sort of take for granted is also super weird, you know, like, and they've, they say in some of the articles, right, that, you know, how the eye perceives color is pretty well understood by science. But once those signals get passed to the brain, yeah, they say, Ooh, mental, colors, yes, mental colors, yes, mental colors, the, 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 the properties that we interpret that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it gets really pretty wild. <laughs> so this brings us to kind of the big question in this topic, which is, do colors exist metaphysically or are just ontologically? Do they actually exist in reality or do they only exist in our experience of being? <laughs> I, I often walk the wall between two places. <laughs> I I don't um, I I don't think platonically. I don't think there's an ideal red. I think there are reds that some of us appreciate more than others. As an example, we have our own tastes, which are determined in part by our mental states, by how we perceive color and everything, but is does something seemingly have color yes and i think if we if we if we were again working with kids and we and we started off in the position of telling them that doesn't have any color at all and they're trying to figure out what it is they're experiencing it'd be a lot harder and that's so much of what we do when we teach people teach children we take the seemingly easier route which was perhaps the most simple and then try to build out from that unfortunately some people don't get the building out and they don't get the so does something so what's your question again yeah so do colors exist metaphysically or only ontologically i think colors have the capacity of existing <laughs> <laughs> metaphysically uh, and they certainly are, exist phenomenologically uh, but the fact that I can take what's said to be purple as pink uh, says may say something about my my genetics it may say something about uh, all of those things but ultimately I'm not seeing what somebody else is exactly seeing which means it's something that I paint or do in pastel or watercolor Somebody else is not necessarily going to see those same things. And that's what happens with art anyway. You have discussions about art and what's there. And, oh, I didn't know. Now I see that that's there. It's sort of like the, the smiling-faced young kid and the, and the crone, those, those pictures that you look yeah. at together, which is sort of like that color that you were talking about. I, I have to operate under the notion for, you, for purposes of utility, not utilitarianism, but utility, to say, yes, I want to go to an art shop and I want to buy certain kinds of blue. I'm perceiving these colors as I'm looking at the product, 
so that I can make what I wish to make. So I, I, I acknowledge the utility, which means that something seemingly exists beyond my eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can also accept intellectually that that's, that's in flux because of light, chemical, and, and so on. That doesn't stop me from going out and buying blue. Yeah. Does that? Yeah. I think that, I think for my answer to it, I'm going to take us to a really weird place. Um, (laughs) So we'll go to music, right? Because like you said, like we often do. Mm -hmm. Um, If I am playing a bass guitar versus a regular guitar, that's sort of like red light versus blue light. Um, You pluck a bass string and the the string vibrates in such a way, which a vibration is really just a wave form. Um, and that's a very long wave. And the longer the waves, the bassier the sound. A guitar string is much thinner. Your scale length is much shorter. So when you pluck the string, you can get the same note, um, but the note will be higher pitched because the the wave of the string is much closer together. It's pretty much the same as a red light, blue light. Mm-hmm. Now, you can mess with that in psychoacoustic ways in mixing, and I often do, um, where you can actually, if you cut out the lower octave of a guitar, say, I can cut out the entire lower octave, your brain will insert that lower octave. So you will perceive the note, the guitar is being bassier than it actually is, (laughs) because your brain will fill in the gap. Um. So, okay, there's music. So there seems to be this this correlation, right, between sound waves and light waves. Well, then bring into that the concept of synthesia, right? People who hear certain notes um, will see colors. (laughs) And this goes across to other experiences as well. The first documented case of synthesia synthesia was actually... Synthesia. Synthesia was actually uh, Pythagoras who developed mathematical equations in order to match musical notes he was hearing in his head, right? Sounds crazy. This is a well-documented scientific phenomenon. And it demonstrates some sort of crossover. And I think that determining where that crossover happens kind of tells you whether color is a, a, a metaphysical or an ontological property, right? Because if, if it's just some wires crossed in your brain, then it's just an experiential thing. But I think what's missing in some of the philosophical and scientific conversations about color is the importance of light or viewing light as an object in itself. Mm-hmm. I think that with that component missing, then you're always going to say that color doesn't um, objectively exist. But the fact that we know through additive color, right, that light actually contains every color and that light photons are surrounding us, that almost leads you to feel that light is some foundational part of the universe and reality that we live in. If you go back all the way to the Big Bang, Anytime you have an explosion, photons are a, a, a byproduct of this. So from the very origin of the universe all the way through star formation and everything else, there's always been photons. Photons have always consisted of every color that exists. So it seems to me that color may be a foundational property of the universe, but it's not really talked about that way that I could find. I, I, it, it isn't, but I like... I like very much where you're going with that because it has a rootedness. I, there's an old cartoon of where a philosopher says, well, there's just an idea of stone. There's not actually a stone. And another person stubs his toe on the stone and says, the stone exists now. (laughs) You know, whether it exists directly as an inherent part of what of, of an object, or whether it's indirectly because of interactions of various kinds. I'm with you in the sense that there is something past ourselves. 
um, not necessarily fully physicalist because it's not, it's not that the ball is red because the ball had the disposition to be red. The ball was a plastic, mm. uh, a sphere of plastic. And then red was given to it. <laughs> yeah. You know what this, this whole conversation we're having is, you know what it is, right? It's if a tree falls in the forest, it does somebody is. hear it, right? So <laughs> we about that for minutes. Yeah. So we have we have the ability to perceive color, but if we were not here to perceive it, would color exist? And so we know in the case of structural color, right? Those mm-hmm. things that possess a, a certain structure that just so matches with the light waves that no color doesn't actually exist. If no, nobody's here to perceive it, um, those things would just have a structure. Some color would exist, though, if some creature existed other than us. I mean, there are billions, how many different kinds of life forms on this planet mm-hmm. that are diminishing, but that, that we still have. And we know uh, through our technologies that there are colors ranging from the ultraviolet to the infrared, taking us to another conversation we had long ago about the idea of we keep coming back to perception. Well, in this case, we could adequately say, well, those colors don't exist because I can't see them. Right. <laughs> uh, and we know that some animals, we've learned that some uh, certain animals don't see red or t- choose your color. And so would red exist in a world when those animals are there? Well, perhaps not. And it certainly wouldn't be called red because of the linguistic element, which is an entirely other thing that we get to it. Does red exist? Only because we applied the letters and the sounds yes. <laughs> to make it red. <laughs> what if I called it Bix? Yeah. <laughs> I, I want light Bix or dark Bix. And somebody's sitting right there saying, what are you talking about? But, but it's, we have linguistically attributed a name for purposes of utility <laughs> and uniformity. So we train kids. Uh, yes, that's red. No, that's not red. Yeah, and very interestingly, this does not translate across culture either because there are many um, cultures. I, Russian is the one that's, that pops to mind where um, blue and azure, they have different words and different conceptions for them. Whereas in English, I mean, sure, we have the the word azure, but azure is is a blue. It, it falls under the category blue. Um, but in other languages, other cultures, these are thought of as distinct things, and that and color does. There's there's that linguistic element. Some of our colors we give concrete names, like salmon. Right? <laughs> salmon is a fish. It's also this per, you know pinkish orange color. But yeah, red. What is red? Red is nothing. Red is a is three letters, right? So where did that where did that originate? You know, where did it come from? Why do we use that to describe what we see? Why do we always push for standardization? Say so this is where we put things in silos, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, and we, and we categorize and cross reference and cross reference and subcategorize so that everything will be neat and tidy. But color isn't neat and tidy even if you take a a a crimson which is not red (laughs) and 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 it becomes the color that you really enjoy working with and then you stare at it long enough you will see perhaps motion or movement a vibrancy an oscillation a trick of the eye, mm. perhaps, or the interaction again of the, of, of the light with that color such that, or the brown you were talking about, or looking back at the sky with the blue, where does the blue become ultramarine? Where does yeah. the ultramarine become azure? And, and, and then finally to an almost blackish purple. Um, there's no distinct boundary that we can see with our yes, eyes. Yes, and this is exactly what I was talking about in the intro when I said this is an elegant visual representation of what philosophy is about, is this gradient, right? Yes, this gradient yes, of yes. color. We know, we know from 
phenomenological experience that red is different from blue. But when you start looking at the gradients and you start saying, well, where does this color change into a different color? For you, as, a, as opposed to anybody else, because for you, it might change. People have probably had this experience. If you've ever used, um, like on a computer, um, a, a paint program or something, if you go into like the advanced color section and it gives mm -hmm. you basically, um, you know, like a square grid and usually down at the bottom, it, everything's white up at the top, everything's black. And then going left to right, you have red to blue. And there's a little circle you can grab and you can move it anywhere, right? You can move that. If you take that and you start moving it left to right, try to determine where red turns into okay, orange, good, where right. orange turns into yellow. Yep. You, you, you really can't do it. You get to that middle part and you go, well, this isn't red or orange. It's reddish orange. You know, this, that's just a visual example of what we talk about every week on this show, which is that we, our brains need to categorize things in order to understand them. But the categories are really just for us. They don't exist. They're not out there. And so we, with any of these concepts that we talk about, we can say, well, this is different from this. We know that. But then when you try to trace back the steps, you try to get to the point where you know that that thing becomes a different thing, a distinct thing. It's almost impossible to pin it down. Is. So, so you just took me to a, a side. It's not a tangent, but it's an example. If any of us, any of us who have ever tried to fix a dent in a car, hmm. and then we want to match the paint, <laughs> or indeed on a house, you painted a house a decade ago, and you want to go back and, and you can take a chip from the house that you can take it to a hardware, at least in the United States, places in the United States, you can put it, they scan the chip, and I'm sure lots of other places, and comes up with an approximation, often a very good approximation of the original. And you look at it and you say, yeah, that's pretty close, that'll do. But it may well not be exactly it. Or you mm -hmm. go to a car. If there's records of the car that you bought, and, and the records will include the chemical formula for the paint, the, the tint, the, the value. And that can be replicated through a chemical process to give you the exact paint. That's because it's a bunch of chemicals being intermixed. It's not because that color exists. Right. <laughs> Independent of all those things that you, and then you put paint it on the car and you realize, oh, that doesn't look quite right. Why? Because the rest of the color is, has been burning or affected by sunlight. Right. Weathering. Which seems like a weird thing to happen if color didn't exist metaphysically. But yeah, this brings up, um, you and I were talking before the show about how we have an aversion to these mechanistic and behavioral conceptions of human development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a good example of why those theories don't work. And that's emergent properties. <laughs> when you take a bunch of chemicals, right? This chemical and that chemical might not have any properties of color on their own, but then you mix them together and they become red, right? That's, I mean, that's reflected in, in human development too, right? You, you can't just, reality is not additive. And this is, this goes back to our conversation about existential physics that we were talking about, um, which is, you know, if, if you're a physicist, you necessarily have an additive view of reality based off of the standard model of physics. Yes. Um, but there are many examples of things in everyday life that appear to be multiplicative, right? You, when you put this and this together, you don't get this plus this. You get this, this, and new emergent properties that come out. Hydrogen, oxygen, you get water. You get something that has this property of wetness, right? And you can't explain where that came from. Color is kind of an emergent property of of reality, right? These things that come around and sometimes, and the weird part about it is that there's different types, right? You have light, which has this additive property, right? And then pigment is the exact opposite, right? You mix, you mix this and you get the, the opposite effect. 
how? How does that make sense? You know, or the, the fact that you could just have a structure and that that can give you a color. Mm-hmm. It's really just a, a wild conception. On top of that, right? There's a part that we haven't talked about yet, which is the color affects us. And yes, that's the whole. Yes, let's talk about that. <clears throat> Because why would we be talking about all of these things? It's interesting. Uh, but if you want to go back to utility, but what do we do with it? Well, what we do with it is ask ourselves as artists why we're making these choices. Are there other choices that could work better? What have we hit upon that we didn't that, that, that surprised us? But then we can go into an entirely other a- area, which is think about what we've done with pigmentation and social dynamics, socio-political dynamics on this planet in the past 200, 300 years, Hmm. 400 years, wherein we attribute certain characteristics to uh, the proportion of melanin in skin pigmentation. And I'm, 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 I'm trying to express this without derailing what we're because I think it's under it's underneath what we're talking about. Yeah, we give such such focus to it. Um, there was a reprehensible term that still exists that I grew up hearing in the place that I grew up, uh, which was to talk about uh, the word using the word colored to refer to human beings well when you when you do that and you're starting to think uh you you, you're getting more educated you're reading and you're reading and you're experiencing people and then you finally get away from the place that you that you grew up in and you and you come to fresh more humility and understanding one of the things you ask yourself in your mind is oh so you think you don't have color and you can refer to other people. So if if you're white, well, let's see. Uh, we've just discussed white being a mixture of a containing of, of all color, but but none of us is. Yeah, none of us is. If we look at our skin, <laughs> yeah, the blood and so on and so forth. So no, it, we can't discern a blue that's an absolute blue. If we look honestly with our eyes at our, uh, the biggest organ in our body is our skin. The largest organ is our skin. And I defy any, <laughs> under, under a, a, a white light, I can see as an, with an artist's eye, at least seven values of pink to red. Yeah. And so the, yeah, it's really complicated. I've got a pop culture thing that will will bring this back um that I saw this week which was it was a split image and on one side you had Obama and on the other side you had Trump. And um what they had done is they had zoomed in um on had little circles of both of their skin that they zoomed <laughs> in on. And the caption was they're right orange really is the new black. And what you saw was that Trump's spray tan was actually darker than Obama's skin, right? Which I, is, it goes back to what you're talking about, this perception, our, our ability to look at something and then stereotype one thing out of it is disingenuous to the process that's going on. I have, I have freckles, right? So if you look at me, I'm a very pale person. So you might say, this is the whitest guy I've ever met. But if you look closely... Some of my freckles are actually what they call ink blot lentigos, which are so black that they are go beyond even being a freckle, right? Mm. So if you zoom in on any given part, um, it doesn't reflect the stereotype that you get when you take in the whole image. Yeah. And then what, what like the, the bigger um, issue here is what we attribute to those colors, right? Here in the Western world, um, we wear white to our weddings, right? Because white symbolizes um, purity, right? <laughs> right, right. In Eastern cult, a lot of Eastern cultures, they um, they wear white to their funerals because white is is a color of mourning, right? Mm. 
so that's almost a, a representation of additive and subtractive coloring, right? You you have opposite emotions, um, but you're getting the same value. Out exactly. Of so so it, it's a, color is important philosophically because of what we what we unconsciously associate, which needs to be rendered conscious, which needs to be talked about, which needs to be dissected and thought about and re remade in one's consciousness. And that's as much true for the, the absolutely vital getting rid of the notion of, of, of race as, as it is for creating an image that you find most speaks to what your vision is when you're making a piece of art. Yeah. Norm, I'm so excited for the next couple episodes <laughs> because here's the things that I'm thinking of, right? Okay, yeah. um, one, when I was talking about music, guitar strings and bass strings and mm -hmm. color, mm -hmm. that got me thinking about uh, something that we talked about in Symmetry, which is harmony. I think we need to do an episode on harmony, I and I think that that's going to be really cool. The other one um, that I was thinking about that we were just talking about, ah, shoot. Oh, don't lose it. Oh, back. yeah, I'll, I'll find it. But there was another one that is, it, it's going to be really interesting. Um, and, but the cool thing is, right, we spent this whole episode talking about color. We didn't even really talk about aesthetics very much, nope. right? We I'm talked about nope. these sort of abstract concepts. We talked about the biophysiological um, parts of how we perceive it. We talked about um, how we apply some of this knowledge, um, you know, and then philosophical um, interactions. So there's definitely room to do um, another episode on color. Yeah, um, let's, let's let's do harmony. That sounds. I, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I think I think harmony will be good. And as soon as I think of that other one, I, it's also going to be pretty good. But until next time, keep on. Doing it.